Hey everyone, welcome to our 30th News Roundup podcast. This is going from uh, June 20th to July 3rd. This podcast is sponsored by Mission Essential Gear, your one-stop combat shop, home of the Thules, the tactical handbook for unit leaders, available at amygearco.com and Amazon as well. Check out the Freelancers, a media and research collective dedicated to covering modern conflicts with a soft focus on foreign fighters. Find them on Twitter at CBT Freelancers, Instagram at Freelancers Blog, and their website at freelancersconflictblog.wordpress.com. Also check out Fortress International, a veteran-owned research and analysis firm based near Washington, D.C. You can find them on Twitter and Instagram at Fortress underscore INT and their website at fortressllc.org. Lastly, check out the LARP Bazaar. That's a tactical gear and apparel company started by myself and two other Marine veterans. Head over to LARPbazaar.com if you want to see what we have. And before we get started, uh, as you can tell, this is a two-week podcast. I meant to put out one last week. I recorded it. Uh, At least I thought I did. Uh, I had my microphone muted the entire time, so I didn't get anything. Um, And I did not have the time to re-record everything, so that's why this turned into a two-week podcast. Um, with that being said, uh, this isn't really a two week per se. Um, I, this podcast is really dedicated mostly to Ethiopia and Afghanistan right now. Those are easily the two most, uh, kinetic, um, and, uh, really changing, uh, conflicts and situations in the world, um, at least for this time period. So I dedicated most of this podcast to those uh, two wars that are going on, Ethiopia and Afghanistan. Um, I know there's a lot more that happened in this two-week period, um, but just just for time's sake and um, for the sake of wanting to get everything that's going on uh, in those two wars, um, I wasn't able to include a lot of news that happened. Um, but next week we'll... Uh, be a different story, but just a heads up uh, before we head into this podcast so you know what uh, to expect. But with that being said, we'll get started. All right, and we're going to start off with the COVID-19 numbers and news. On June 20th, we had 178 million cases and 3.8 million deaths. On July 3rd, we had 184 million cases and 3.98 million deaths. There are still three countries with over 10 million cases, the U.S. at 33, India at 30, and Brazil at 18. There are still 28 countries with over 1 million cases, and there are 13 countries with less than 1,000 cases. The number of reinfections remains the same from uh, the last podcast, so those numbers have not changed. As of July 3rd, there had been over 3.22 billion doses of any COVID-19 vaccine given in 180 countries. The U.S. is sitting at 47.4% of its population fully vaccinated. The world is sitting at 11% fully vaccinated. That is a correction for my numbers on the last podcast. I believe I said the number was 16% uh, for the last podcast. That was a mistake. Those numbers were for partially vaccinated. And we had record cases reported nine times in Indonesia, three times in Fiji, five times in Scotland, twice in Colombia, South Africa, and Thailand, and once in Vietnam and Brazil. We had record deaths reported five times in Russia, twice in Thailand, once in Argentina, and once in Indonesia. 
On June 20th, Moscow Mayor Sergei Sobayan confirmed that some of those that were infected with the Delta variant of the virus had already been vaccinated, although he didn't give specific numbers or percentages. Russia does use the homegrown Sputnik V vaccine, so keep that in mind. Also on the 20th, China announced that it had administered more than 1 billion doses of any vaccine, with 100 million given in just the five days prior to this date. The U.S. reported only 96 deaths, the lowest number since March 21st, 2020, and 4,388 cases, which is the lowest uh, case toll since March 18th, 2020. On June 21st, the United Kingdom reported the largest increase in hospitalizations since February 1st of this year, an additional 156. Israel reported no virus deaths for the eighth day in a row. Massachusetts became the second U.S. state to fully vaccinate 60% of its population. Also, in an address, Filipino President Rodrigo Duterte said to his people, quote, if you don't get vaccinated, leave the Philippines. Go to India if you want or somewhere to America. But for as long as you are here and you are a human being and you can carry the virus, you should get vaccinated, end quote. And separately, he said, quote, you choose, get vaccinated or I will have you jailed, end quote. And lastly, on the 21st, Cuba announced that its Abdallah vaccine had an efficacy rate of 92.28%. Many experts are skeptical of this claim and the vaccine in general which does require three separate doses to be considered effective. On June 22nd, 70% of Americans over the age of 30 were at least partially vaccinated. It was announced that 153 employees of the Houston Methodist Hospital had resigned or been fired over refusing to receive a COVID-19 vaccine, a condition that the hospital put in place for their employees recently. And the Indian Health Ministry designated a new variant of concern, the Delta Plus variant, which is a further mutation of the Delta variant also discovered in India, it appears to be more easily transmissible, but there's no evidence yet that it's more deadly than the Delta variant. And lastly, on the 22nd, Russia reported the highest increase in deaths since February 11th of this year. On the 23rd, a new report by the European CDC concluded that 90% of new cases in the European Union will be of the Delta variant by the end of August. The same report stated that having received two doses of any available vaccine will provide high protection against the variant. On the 24th, Russia recorded the biggest daily increase in cases since January 24th. And also on the 24th, the Associated Press reported that out of 18,000 COVID deaths in the US in May, only 150 of those were people that were fully vaccinated. On the 25th, the Wall Street Journal reported that 90% of new cases in Israel are of the Delta variant, and South Africa recorded its biggest daily increase of cases since January 9th of this year. On June 28th, Tanzania reported its first update in over a year, confirming more than 100 active cases, of which 70 were on ventilators. On July 2nd, the Australian state New South Wales reported the largest increase in cases since April 2020. And on July 3rd, Tajikistan became the first country to make receiving a vaccination mandatory for all its citizens over the age of 18. At this time, the country had only vaccinated 0.19% of its population. And also on the 3rd, the United Kingdom reached 50% of its population fully vaccinated. 
New York City reported no deaths for the second day in a row, which is a record for quite some time in this pandemic. And Israel reported no deaths for the ninth day in a row, a record since the beginning of the pandemic. Moving on to Europe and Armenia, on June 20th, elections were held for the country's National Assembly with almost 2.6 million voters on the register. In the Amavir region, a worker for former President Robert Kocharian's highest end bloc, otherwise known as the Armenian Alliance, was arrested for unknown reasons. Another report separately claimed that a military unit stationed in the Goris region was forced to vote for acting Prime Minister Nicole Pashinyan by their commanders. The election was won by Pashinyan and his civil contract alliance, taking 71 seats in the assembly. Heiston took 21, and the party known as I Have Honor took seven seats. Moving on to the Middle East in Iraq, on June 25th, at least one drone attacked the Kurdistan city of Erbil near the Kanzad Hotel, which is frequented by British and American diplomats. Local officials said only material damage was caused to a nearby home. The night prior, local forces destroyed two UAVs that were fitted with explosives, and these UAVs are thought to have been part of an operation by the PMU, who held a parade showing off their drone showcase the same day in Baghdad. In Yemen, airstrikes, ballistic missiles, and UAVs continued to be prominent factors in the civil war. On the 26th, the Saudi-led coalition intercepted at least six UAVs and two ballistic missiles launched by Houthi rebel forces towards Saudi Arabia. Houthi forces attempted an offensive in Marib Governorate. Coalition sources claim that three artillery strikes and over 10 airstrikes were conducted, and in the fighting, dozens of Houthis were killed, 16 were captured, and eight of their vehicles were destroyed. The rebels launched a series of eight human wave assaults, and they were repelled by the coalition. Moving into Afghanistan, this is our main story uh, for this two-week period of the podcast. The Taliban Spring Offensive continued its push into multiple districts as the group made significant gains. Civilian armed groups numbering in the thousands mobilized to defend at least 10 provinces from the militants. Additionally, President Ghani replaced the Ministers of Interior and Defense with General Abdul Sattar Merskawal and General Besmala Mohammadi, respectively. Thousands of civilians across the country have been displaced in recent times, including at least 5,000 from Kunduz province alone. June was the deadliest month in the country in more than 20 years, and amid all the violence and shifting boundaries, the Pentagon reiterated its plans to withdraw from the country in the coming months, regardless of a possible government collapse in Afghanistan. On June 20th, two police officers were shot and killed in the PD-9 area of Mazari Sharif by unknown gunmen. Taliban forces captured the Dasht, the Archie district in Kunduz province. Security personnel appeared to have abandoned the area before its capture. Afghan forces launched counter-assaults in the district and reportedly killed 25 fighters along with a commander, but did not recapture the territory. Additionally, the districts of Kaisar, Kohistan, and Pashtunkot were captured along with multiple areas of Faryab province, with militants positioned on the outskirts of the capital, Mayana. Lastly, government troops retook the districts of Bangi and Kwajigar and cleared the villages of Abdal and Karapacho of Taliban in the Taklan district. On June 21st, a car bomb in the Andar district killed five troops and wounded five others. The Taliban captured the Shajoy district in Zambul province after holding the market center since June 5th. The group captured many small arms from security personnel and claimed at least 
50 personnel surrendered to them. Additionally, Chahar Balak district was taken. Military equipment was captured and security personnel, including special forces soldiers, surrendered to the militants. In the same district, the Ministry of Defense claimed an airstrike killed 15 fighters, including a commander. Also on the 21st, a report claimed that in the 96 hours prior to this day, the Afghan army and national police forces lost 83 Humvees to the Taliban and a total of 149 in the three weeks prior to this date. This includes Humvees that were either destroyed or captured. 13 other districts were also lost to the group over the course of the day leading into the 22nd. Militants attacked an outpost in the Faraz Nakhchir district, but were repelled by airstrikes, which reportedly killed 19 of them. Lastly, on the 21st, in a clearance operation in Balkh province, government troops retook the district of Balkh and repelled the Taliban from the outskirts of Mazari Sharif, Afghanistan's fourth largest city. On the 22nd, Ahmad Bashir Samin was appointed as the governor of Badakhshan province after protesters demanded the removal of his predecessor. A roadside bomb in Maiwan district killed five civilians and wounded 20 others, including children. This district was recently captured by militants. And the districts of Dushi and Ali Abad were retaken by government troops, the latter of which was captured by the Taliban just the day prior. Taliban forces took control of the main border crossing with Tajikistan in the town of Shir Khan Badar. This is a massive gain for the group. An army officer who fought there claimed that the crossing was assaulted by hundreds of fighters and government troops were forced to retreat, with some even fleeing into Tajikistan. The State Committee for the National Security for Tajikistan confirmed that 134 soldiers went into the country on this day. On June 23rd, militants captured nine districts, five in Paktia province, three in Badakhshan, and one in Baglan. On June 24th, 130 Taliban fighters surrendered to the government to join the peace process in Herat province. The leader of the group, Mardan Ozai, said, quote, with the withdrawal of foreign forces from the country, the time for jihad is over and we will no longer continue to fight the country's military. Also on the 24th, militants captured seven districts. According to government sources, each district that was captured had about 300 soldiers deployed to it at the time of capture. They also captured the PD2 area of Pula'i Kumri and are attempting to capture the entire city with fighting still ongoing at this point. On June 24th also, it was announced that 650 U.S. Marines will remain in the country to provide security to diplomats after the main withdrawal, which will most likely be completed within the next two weeks. President Ghani, First Vice President Amrullah Saleh, and head of the Council for National Reconciliation, Abdullah Abdullah, visited Washington, D.C. to meet with U.S. officials. After meeting with Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, the senator said, quote, I hope the Biden administration will delay the withdrawal, address these concerns, and reconsider its misguided retreat, end quote. After his meeting with the delegation, President Biden said that Afghans who risked their lives to work with Americans during the war will not be left behind, and his administration is working on evacuating them to the United States. As many as 18,000 Afghans have applied for U.S. visas. According to the Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, about half of those have already completed the necessary forms for the visa process and are currently awaiting approval. On June 25th, government troops took at least five districts from the Taliban. Separately, three districts fell to the Taliban. The Taliban district governor for Shirtapa was reportedly killed in an airstrike. 
In an interview with Arab News, Pakistani Prime Minister Imran Khan confirmed that his country will not take military action in Afghanistan if the country does fall to the Taliban. Also, the U.S. launched two airstrikes in the northern part of the country, killing an unknown amount of Taliban. On June 26, the Taliban captured the Syed Abad district. A large but unknown number of Afghan soldiers surrendered to the militants in the district. Images and videos show Taliban fighters with captured equipment, including armored personnel carriers. Pro-Taliban sources claim that as many as 190 soldiers and militiamen surrendered to the group after the fight, but those numbers could be inflated. The group also took four other districts on this day. In a statement, Acting Interior Minister General Abdul Merskal claimed that the Taliban are moving captured tanks across the border into Pakistan and other permanent I'm sorry, ordered permanent patrols in the border area of Zabul province to keep this from happening. The Taliban has denied this claim. Lastly, on the 26th, Afghan troops broke the Taliban siege of Puli Kumri and retook the city's PD2 area. Separately, troops retook Talawar Barfak district. On June 27th, an explosion targeting a bus in Charakir City injured 13 civilians. This came as fighting drew relatively close to the city's outskirts. Also, the Taliban captured at least the three, excuse me, districts on this day. On June 28th, in an address, Uzbekistan's Foreign Minister Aziz Kamaliyev said that his government does not see a military solution to the conflict and that he hopes Afghanistan will become integrated into Central Asia. He also reiterated that his country won't accept a return to the Taliban government seen in the late 1990s, although he didn't further elaborate on that. Also on the 28th, militants took four districts. Government troops retook Pashtun Kult, Khan, Turbarak, and Kaldar district. On this day alone, the government registered 94 separate Taliban attacks across 71 districts in the country. In an interview with Geo News, Pakistani Interior Minister Sheikh Rashid Ahmad claimed that the families of some Taliban fighters reside in Pakistan, including in the country's capital city. And he also claimed injured fighters come to Pakistan to receive treatment for their wounds in hospitals. This may come into conflict with an, with an interview given by Foreign Minister Shah Mahmood Qureshi, who denied the existence of Taliban sanctuaries and institutions in his country. And lastly, on the 28th, a set of classified Ministry of Defense documents found at a bus stop in the United Kingdom revealed that the U.S. government has asked the U.K. to keep a special forces contingent deployed in Afghanistan after the completion of the main NATO withdrawal. Few other details were released, but it's already widely speculated that the U.K. was considering a similar plan anyway. On June 29th, militants took at least four districts. Government troops retook the district of Shinwari. Germany's last troop detachment left Afghanistan as NATO forces continued to leave the country and turn over their bases to Afghan forces. The Interior Ministry announced the establishment of a 4,000-strong reserve unit that will serve as a quick reaction force to Taliban attacks across the country. The unit will be under the command of retired Afghan generals, but no other details were given. In the same address, the government also announced that in the past month, security forces have killed 6,000 Taliban fighters, with 33 of them being Pakistani nationals. In addition, the Afghan Air Force carried out 491 airstrikes, and the Special Operations Corps increased their activity by 30% in the same time period. 
On June 30th, the last remaining Italian troops handed over control of their base in Herat province to the Afghan government and left the country. On July 1st, the last U.S. forces at Bagram Air Base left the base and handed it over to the Afghan government, notably without actually telling or informing the Afghan commanders at the time of their departure. Bagram was the largest NATO base in the country and served as the hub for the war in Afghanistan. On July 2nd, fighting was reported in the town of Korean, and the Taliban made some gains inside the area, but it's not clear if the Taliban, or I'm sorry, it's not clear if the town has fallen to the Taliban at this point. Also on the 2nd, the Taliban took at least seven districts from government troops. On July 3rd, a new U.S. command structure for the country was announced with the commander of all NATO forces, General Scott Miller, turning over his duties to CENTCOM commander, General Frank McKenzie. Additionally, a two-star admiral will head a newly formed U.S. Forces Afghanistan forward, who will oversee security for the U.S. Embassy and diplomatic personnel in the country. A separate satellite office will be set up in Qatar to administer financial and maintenance support to Afghan security forces and will be headed by a one-star general. General McKenzie will retain the authority to command all counterterrorism missions in the country for the ongoing future. The Taliban took at least two districts on the third. Government troops retook the Baharak district from the Taliban. And according to numbers collected by Tolo News, militants have captured at least 108 districts in the last two months, with government troops retaking at least 10 of them. And that's all we have for Afghanistan. We will take a quick break and we'll be right back with Africa. Moving on to Africa and more specifically Ethiopia, the war between federal troops, the ENDF, backed by Eritrean troops, and the Tigray Defense Forces, the TDF, continued throughout this week. Social media confirmed gains and losses by both sides. The TDF released videos showing tons of military equipment captured and thousands of federal troops taken as prisoners of war by the group. Additionally, fighting spilled over into other regions as seen before in this conflict. On June 22nd, TDF forces briefly recaptured Adi Grat after federal troops abandoned the city. However, after a counter-assault by federal troops assisted by Eritrean forces, the city was captured once again. Adi Grat was captured by the ENDF before the end of 2020 at the onset of the war. Fighting was reported near Kola, Tambien, and Aliji, but those areas remained in the control of the federal government. Fighting was also reported near the TDF-held town of Adi Gudim, but no changes in territorial control were reported. The Ethiopian Air Force bombed a marketplace in the town of Togaga, killing at least 64 civilians and wounding at least 180 more. The death toll rose initially after emergency services were blocked from entering the area by federal forces. The military neither confirmed nor denied this incident, only saying that it did not target civilians. On the 23rd, an L-130 jet of the Tigray Air Force, I'm sorry, of the Ethiopian Air Force, was shot down near the town of Gijet. The plane was carrying an unknown amount of troops and ammunition, and there were no survivors. 
The plane was formerly operated by Ethiopian Airlines, but it appears that it was transferred to the military at some point. It's not known exactly what shot the aircraft down, but videos on social media show that it was well within the range of manned portable air defense systems, man pads. And if you don't know what that is, it's most commonly in the form of a shoulder-fired missile launcher. Gedeche Reda, who is the advisor to the president of Tigray, claimed that Eritrean military officers were on board that plane as well. And this is a major loss to the Air Force as it had less than 10 cargo planes prior to this incident. So even losing one is a big deal for them, especially when they're fighting this war on so many fronts at this point. Also on the 23rd, the Tigray Defense Force announced some details for its counteroffensive in the region, which began on June 18th, known as Operation Alula. The group claims that opposition forces have, I'm sorry, opposing forces have suffered the following material losses. Thousands of rifles, 300 light machine guns, 61 Soviet-made heavy machine guns, 10 anti-aircraft guns, over 200 sniper rifles, 144 vehicles, 409 radios, and an ammunition depot. The report also says that the TDF have killed over 10,000 soldiers and captured over 3.3,000. Additionally, the 31st and 11th divisions of the ENDF were completely destroyed, along with one brigade of the 20th division. The 24th division was rendered combat ineffective. And lastly, the commanders of the 21st and 31st divisions were supposedly killed, and the commanding officer of the 11th division, a man by the name of Colonel Hussein, was captured. Now, uh, take into account that information coming out of Ethiopia is very hard to come by since the beginning of a war. They've had uh, this communications blackout, um, radio, uh, telephone, internet. It's very difficult for information to come out, and that's why... Um, even though this war has gone on for eight months at this point, there hasn't been a whole lot of information that's gotten out because of this communication blackout. So even though these statistics are being claimed by Tigray forces, that doesn't mean that they're legitimate. They could be inflated. Um, it's really hard to tell. So just take that with a grain of salt. On the 25th, local sources excuse me, confirmed the recapture of the town Wukro by the TDF. The town was in the hands of federal troops by no later than November 28th of last year. Also on the 25th, three aid workers with Doctors Without Borders, otherwise known by their French acronym as MSF, were found dead in the Tigray region near their empty vehicle. The organization said they lost contact with the workers a day prior, and the three workers were in Tigray to provide aid to locals who were affected by the ongoing war in the area. It hasn't been announced how they died or who is responsible for their deaths. MSF workers have witnessed and been victims of violence by federal troops during the course of the war. Some have even witnessed troops executing innocent people, and at least one of their workers has been beaten by a soldier and threatened with murder. Lastly, on the 25th, the Oromo Liberation Army, OLA, raided ENDF positions in Finachawa and reportedly killed at least 12 soldiers. On the 20th, I'm sorry, on the 28th, TDF troops retook the regional capital of Mekele and surrounding areas after it was captured by federal troops seven months ago. The federal government declared a ceasefire in the conflict, but Tigray forces have rejected this ceasefire until Eritrean troops leave the region, a condition that has not yet been met, so this war will continue for some time. 
The federally placed Tigray interim government and the local ENDF garrison abandoned the city, and it appears that the city went without much of a fight. UNICEF confirmed that during the retreat of federal troops, they entered a UNICEF office and stole and destroyed multiple pieces of equipment. And the TDF claimed that they captured most of an unknown ENDF brigade near the town of Wukro, which was previously captured by them. They also decimated two other brigades in the area of Amatilla, but uh, not many details were given on those claims. And lastly, on the 28th, the TDF retook 18 towns and villages in the region, so they are making significant gains. On the 29th, the TDF recaptured the towns of Adwa and May Makden. On July 1st, there were reports of widespread arrest of ethnic Tigrayan men in the federal capital of Addis Ababa, but not many details, again, because of this communication blackout, so take everything with a grain of salt. Also on July 1st, the Oromo Liberation Front in the Oromo Federalist Congress, the two most prominent opposition parties in the Oromia region, stated that Oromia has no legitimate government and announced the establishment of the Oromia Regional National Transitional Government. According to the parties, this government will rule for three years until a proper, quote, legitimate government of the people by the people is established. This is drawing concerns due to the fact that Tigray was invaded by federal troops last November for holding unapproved elections. You could see the similarities in the two situations. On July 2nd, the OLA claimed that it killed seven Ethiopian soldiers in an ambush near Lalisa Babir. And on July 3rd, the OLA claimed that it killed 27 Ethiopian soldiers and wounded another 18 in the district of Nunu Kumba. At this point, the TDF controls most of central Tigray, while federal troops control a good portion of the south and federally backed troops, which mostly includes militias and Eritrean forces, control most of the north and the west of the region. Moving on to the Americas in Peru, there has been no declared winner in the June 6th presidential election, but the general consensus is that free Peru candidate Pedro Castillo is the winner with a 44,000 vote lead. Supporters of Castillo and his rival population, sorry, popular force candidate Kiku Fujimori continue to demonstrate in the streets, but there's really no other updates besides that. In the United States on June 21st, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled 9-0 that student athletes could receive education-related payments and benefits, a decision that went against the NCAA. In an opinion, Justice Brett Kavanaugh said, quote, nowhere else in America can businesses get away with agreeing not to pay their workers a fair market rate on the theory that their product is defined by not paying their workers a fair market rate, end quote. He also said, quote, the NCAA is not above the law. Students will now be able to receive up to $6,000 annually if they remain academically eligible and non-cash payment benefits uh, including post-eligibility internships. On June 26th, Othal Ozone Wallace was captured in a treehouse near Atlanta, Georgia. Wallace is a member of the NFAC, the Not Fucking Around Coalition, and was identified as a suspect in the shooting of a Daytona Beach police officer on June 23rd. The NFAC is a black nationalist militia that's mostly active in the southern U.S., and Wallace was found on property associated with the group. 
Georgia State Troopers carried out a search warrant on the property, assisted by the DeKalb County Police, Homeland Security, the FBI, and U.S. Marshals. Found with Wallace were flashbang grenades, at least four firearms, and several boxes of ammunition. The officer he is accused of shooting, 26-year-old Jason Raynor, was shot in the head, but he is apparently showing positive signs of improvement. And lastly, on the 26th, the Supreme Court of Texas ruled that Facebook can be held liable for child sex trafficking that is facilitated on their social media platforms. The ruling allows three lawsuits against the company to move forward, and several victims claim the company knowingly benefited from facilitation of trafficking. In one of the cases, the plaintiff said that she was contacted by a pimp on Instagram, which is owned by Facebook, when she was only 14 years old. She says the man raped her and advertised her on the platform as a prostitute, and when she was rescued from his operation, he continued to use her Instagram profile to lure in other minors. Her mother reported the incident and the use of the platform to Facebook, but the company never responded. Facebook asked the court to dismiss this and similar cases, saying that Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act protects online service providers from liability for content posted by its users and liability for regulating that content. The state Supreme Court dismissed that defense, noting that Congress amended Section 230 so that liability can be imposed on providers that violate federal and state human trafficking laws. And that is all I have for you guys this week. I want to thank you all for supporting this podcast. It means a lot to me. I'm sorry I put this out uh, late, but uh, I'm also sorry that uh, Ethiopia and Afghanistan were the, the biggest stories. Obviously, there was a lot more that happened in this time period, but considering these were the two most uh, really kinetic um, and changing environments uh, throughout this time period, that is where I dedicated uh, most of this podcast, obviously. And again, it really means a lot to me for you guys supporting this. Uh, You could find this podcast on your favorite apps, including Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Anchor, Breaker, Overcast, Radio Public, and Pocket Cast. You could find us on Twitter and Instagram at Analyze Educate, all one word. And that's all I have for you guys this week, and we will see you around.